Welcome to the Plexus Education Leadership Podcast Series. Today we have Dr. Sarah Morrison, Executive Director of the Tennessee State Board of Education, as our guest. Dr. Morrison leads her team in researching, developing, and proposing the best policy options for the state of Tennessee. In the ever-changing world of education and major changes in the education funding model in Tennessee, she and her team work hard to keep district board members and superintendents connected and focused. Well, welcome again, everyone, to the Plexus Education Leadership Podcast. I'm David Linevers, Vice President of Plexus. And today we have a special guest from the Tennessee State Board of Education, uh, their Executive Director, Dr. Sarah Morrison. Uh, welcome, Sarah. How are you doing today? Doing well. Thanks for having me. Yeah, welcome. You know, I'm really glad you were able to take some time. Um, as I was sharing with you earlier, we've done some wonderful connections and podcasts with superintendents throughout Tennessee. And first of all, what a fantastic bunch of leaders. Um, you know, it's not cliche to say that as I've had time to get to know them and spend time with what they care about, their love of the schools, the teachers and in the community. I mean, and then I look at their role and then you at the state level, I'm sure you interact with the, the um, superintendents along the way. But before we jump into that, um, you know, tell us about your background and, and, how, and your journey to being the executive director. Sure. I will try to keep it short, but um Suffice to say, I didn't grow up in Tennessee. This is an adopted home state for me. I grew up in Kentucky, a neighboring state in Louisville. Okay. Um, my parents both had a real focus on education. My mom was a former teacher. My dad was a lawyer, but served on the public school board in Louisville uh, for a long time at some interesting junctures in their trajectory when they were looking at student assignment plans and how to ensure that all students were getting access to a great education and required busing. And you know, for me, that meant as a a little first grader, I was going to a school downtown that was flanked by the housing projects. And so it had a really interesting mix of students, um, some who were coming in from suburbs, some who were living close by and walking to school. And mm. gosh, even as a young child, I just can viscerally remember some of those, what ended up being life lessons around access and opportunity. And um, the fact that students are growing up in such different home lives and that yeah. education really can and should be um, you know, if not the great equalizer, it should be the thing that all families look to uh, for a bright future. I mean, we have to ensure that all students have access to great education, no matter where they're coming from. Um, that is very, so that, very true. Very true. Yeah, that was a formative, uh, again, experience, just even as a young child, because I can remember just being so uh, taken by the fact that there were students who were walkers and riders and that, you know, their home lives just, I, I knew were very different. So yeah, yeah. all that to say, I think it was in my blood from an early age. I loved school. Um, we talked about school a lot at home. Like I said, my dad was on the school board. My mom was a former teacher. My great, my grandmother had been a teacher um, on my mom's side. My grandmother on my dad's side had grown up in a big farm family in Pennsylvania and had to uh, go to high school or no eighth grade, like three times before she could get a job in the city to go to high school. And so it was just something that was valued in our house. It wasn't something that was taken for granted. And so I think in part, that's what led me into education is just believing so strongly in the value that it serves and, and, and can serve if done well for our society, really. Um, so fast forward, I was in college and was a pre-med major, like a lot of people thinking I would be a pediatrician because I love working <laughs> with children. I uh, realized after Kim 101 that that was not my calling. 
right. <laughs> in, the, in the service work I was doing in the kind of after hours tutoring middle school girls, that was really my calling. And so switched over to the education program and never looked back. Um, and taught high school English for a number of years, both outside of Nashville and out in Louisville, uh, my hometown, before okay. just feeling the itch to get into a position that would um, allow me to make more decisions that affected people like myself as a classroom teacher. Because one of my frustrations, I, I loved the job. It's still the hardest job I've ever had teaching high school English. Uh, 150 students, you know, teaching them how to read, write, oh, yeah. oh, yeah. with them on a personal level. Um It was just extremely challenging, but so rewarding. And yet I was frustrated by the systems that were out of my control as a classroom teacher, you know, that allowed people in the room next to me to be, you know, popping in videos. I could hear it every day, walking out at three o'clock with a newspaper and yet making probably 20 to 30,000 more than I was because they've been there that much longer. (laughs) Um, I mean, it just, it seemed to me a system that wasn't designed to bring people in and and help them do the best work Mm. for children. And so um, ended up going back to school at Vanderbilt to get a policy degree in EDD that helped me kind of bridge from teaching into more of the policy arena, learning right. about systems of education, um, governance of education, organizational management. I worked at Vanderbilt while I was um, in school there looking at performance incentive programs and just, again, trying to think about different angles of how you can improve the educator workforce and, and the other factors that uh, that come together um, to create or or not opportunity for students. And what does that look like at the systems level? So from there, I went into the governor's office. Um, it was kind of a fortuitous time to be in Tennessee because we'd gotten a big federal grant called Race to the Top at the time, since 2011. Yeah. We had a governor who was outgoing, but had really put a stake in the ground around some bold moves in terms of um, how to push forward in K-12 education. I was hired into his administration and then kept on in the next administration to work on the race to the top work, particularly some of the human capital policies. So looking at educator evaluation and support, thinking about performance incentives, thinking mm. about training teachers on, um, at the time, Common Core, you know, kind of these more yes. student yep. standards. So I um, jumped into the deep end and, and cut my teeth, you know, on state policy and state governance um, back in the early, like I said, 2011, 2012. And from there, I've been in state government ever since. I was at the Department of Education for four or five years after leaving the governor's office over the human capital work um, as an assistant commissioner. And then from there, I came to the state board about seven years ago and have served as the executive director since then. So lucky number seven. Yeah, (laughs) I think I I always track. I think it's been seven years. (laughs) (laughs) And you've seen a lot in the last seven years, pandemic. I mean, changes in leadership, different funding model, which is being rolled out for the first time in years, right? Yes, big change. That's 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 very recent. I mean, when when you look at that journey along the way, what would you say from the standpoint of you know your early years of teaching to now that you see the difference in in education? Like, what what are some of the differences that you're seeing compared to then? I always love comparing the past to the present because it's part of your journey and what makes you you and and creates that environment of what you love. Well, like I said, I mean, it was it's still the hardest job I've ever had. And I think it's only gotten harder. Um, you know, the onslaught of social media, the just like hyper connection that students have and, and the along with that kind of um, mental stress, emotional stress that that can bring for especially adolescent students. Um, I, I just think there, there's a, a difference there in terms of what students are experiencing now than when I was even in the classroom, like I said, back in 2003, 2004, those years. 
um, that's just, that's hard. That adds to teachers responsibility to serve students and, and meet them where they are emotionally. And, and um, so, you know, it was interesting because before the, the pandemic, which certainly has been a big series of lessons that we're still learning, we mm-hmm. saw some trends around the use of technology, again, the increased needs to serve students' mental and emotional uh, health as a gatekeeping sort of service before that you can really advance their academics. And, you know, with COVID and coming out of COVID, those things are more true than ever. I mean, you know, how can we use technology effectively? Where are the limitations for technology and education, K-12 education specifically? And how do we do a better job of wrapping our arms around all students to ensure that, I mean, it's trite, but it is so true that they know that their educators that they interact with on a day-to-day basis really care and are there to help them before they will buy into anything that we're trying to teach in terms of you know academics and, and a future after high school. So those are a few things for sure that have changed, continue to change. I, I think that's a really good point that without that relationship with the teacher or that person in your life as an educator, you, you can't teach. There's no open door for the teacher to walk through into a kid's heart to to really engage them that way. Yeah, I, I sure found that as a brand new baby teacher, you know, who looked like I was in high school at the time. <laughs> but, you know, they, they weren't going to engage me on Julius Caesar if they didn't have some sense of who I was, the, the why behind my teaching. Yeah, I just I think it, it really is a human enterprise at its core. And great teaching is not an accident. I mean, you really have to be connected to your students, understand their backgrounds and again, how to relate in a way that ties the curriculum to who they are, who they're becoming, the questions that they're asking of themselves, of their communities. Um, that's how you kind of create the fire and the, you know, the passion for learning, I think, is through those connections. Absolutely. And you continue that today in your role as executive director with, so, you know, I was looking over, okay, okay, I, I get the gist of what you do in your role Tell us a little about what the role is responsible for. Maybe like the top three or four things you do in general. Well, in in K-12 governance at the state level, there's a number of kind of players. So kind of situating the board in that context first, we are the policy or rulemaking body. So we're the ones that kind of create the regulations, if you will, at the state level for districts primarily to operate within. Gotcha. And as part of that work, we work closely with the General Assembly uh, when they pass a law, for example, it's usually at the like 100,000 foot level and there's a need to have further definition at the 30,000 foot level. That's the <laughs> policy and rule. So again, we take a lot of direction from laws that get passed, yeah. uh, which requires us to do a lot of outreach to both inform and serve as a resource for legislators uh, in terms of the laws that are, are going to pass and sometimes laws that shouldn't pass, if you can mm. believe it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, definitely. Understand, you know, what, what, what their role, you know, in terms of legislation candidates should be and where, you know, policy can be a more effective vehicle sometimes. Um, and then we work really closely as well with the commissioner of education, who's in Tennessee, a governor appointee. Um, in this case, she has a much bigger staff that is charged with support for districts around implementation of law and policy. So we okay. kind of sit, you know, on a bridge there between the General Assembly and uh, the commissioner and her team, all of which is in service to the classroom educators. And so, you know, again, my experience as a classroom teacher has and continues to serve me well because it, it anchors me in these policy conversations. Everything that we are doing at the state level needs to be in service to great teaching and learning. Um, And so trying to keep a pulse on that, I spent a lot of time working with my board 
to okay. connect them to their education communities, to their legislators, so that when we come together, like we did this morning, to talk about teacher preparation and licensure, we have a study committee that tries to delve into some of those issues, which is a big area of responsibility in terms of policy work for the board, that we understand what's happening in our ed prep programs, so that we understand you know, these new teachers in the classroom, how their preparation and licensure served them well or didn't, and what does that mean in terms of policy implications? Because one thing I love about policy is it's it's nimble. We're constantly coming back together to make adjustments based on how things are playing out. In that's practice. right. You know, that's right. I think that's a really good point that people often forget that policy is, it changes with, with purpose. Exactly. It's, it's dynamic for a reason because you put it in place. And you're like, oh, we didn't think of this. Let's do that. And that's obviously you do a lot of research and there's a lot of data behind qualitative and quantitative data, correct? That's right. Absolutely. We have a fabulous couple people on our team who that's their sort of sole responsibility is to make sure that we're informing our decisions with as much data as possible. And it's something that Tennessee does quite well, I think, in terms of data collection, both Mm. qualitative and quantitative to inform the work. I love the data conversation. I often have data conversations with colleagues and friends, and then my family members kind of roll their eyes and be like, oh God, here we go, talking about (laughs) the data. But it's fascinating because it tells a picture of what you've tried to do based on the policy, where you're trying to go, and then what you hope it'll continue to show in the future. The Plexus Education Leadership Podcast is made possible with the generous support of the Plexus Foundation and UnlimitedTutoring.com. Visit us at www.unlimitedtutoring.com and learn more about our high-quality tutoring offering and affordable pricing packages. We're here and dedicated to your academic success. www.unlimitedtutoring.com Absolutely. You have, to ask, you have to have those research questions in mind as you're you know, proposing implementing a new policy. Because if you don't, then you'll never have the data you need to inform you know, your understanding of its effectiveness. Yeah. So are you, are you more of a data person, qualitative, or are you both a mixture of both? What do you, I know? have to say I'm both. I mean, I was an English teacher, but I, like I told you, you know, admittedly was a, a pre-med major before I got into teaching. Right. I mean, I really, I, I, you know, yeah, I work out on both sides of the brain, but I, um, <laughs> I, I'm a relationship person. I, if I have to yeah. pick one, I mean, I really am about the people and, and the qualitative side. Uh, I enjoy the data and I love the, you know, kind of objective nature of data or more mm-hmm. objective nature. And so I do make sure on my team that I've got people who are really well-equipped on that side of the house too, because I spend more of my time these days in the sort of relationship policy making a little bit more of the arts, you know? Makes sense. Building trust is, is an art and some of us love to do it. And that's what we're energized by. And people obviously gravitate towards you because they know they can trust you that way as well. They're like, hey, we can make these connections. When you think about uh, those board members and their communities, what are some of the things you talk about in getting them connected to their communities in a greater way? What- yeah. Well, the first thing is to carve out work time for them to, to do that. So we try to make sure that they've got the schedule of when our, our directors of schools are meeting, you know, each region. So each of our board members in Tennessee represents their congressional district. So they've got a constituency, if you will, in their yes. part of the state. We're, we're a long, narrow state and East Tennessee and West Tennessee have a lot of things in common and they have a lot of things that are unique to their regions. And so making sure that we're intentional in terms of helping to schedule our board members to attend, you know, the regular meetings with superintendents. We do what we call day in the district um, each year for one for our members and where we take a day and we take them to meet, you know, it's usually sponsored by a superintendent, you know, in an area that they serve and, you know, hear from educators, hear from students, 
meet with legislators, you know, just have time inside school buildings to witness mm-hmm. what's happening, have conversations that are not on camera and are more informal, um, again, about relationship building and trying to understand the issues that face yeah. our schools. And what are the implications for, for policymakers like the board members and myself? Um, so just trying to be really intentional to bring those opportunities to our members um, in a diverse way throughout the year. For example, the other thing we try to do when we come together for a board meeting, which is at least quarterly, and we usually have special called meetings, but for our quarterly meetings, we start our, our sort of Thursday workshop day in schools. You know, we go visit schools as a board. To me, it's really important to anchor those conversations and those decisions in what's happening in schools. And there's no better way to do that than to spend the morning in school. So we do that whenever possible when our board comes together. It's true. You're dealing with schools and people and that's that lifeblood. And it's an incredible undertaking to operate these schools and the school districts to support them every day throughout the year because they really are 24-7 operations. I mean, the one, I know I mentioned the, um, the Camden County superintendent who's dealing with the hurricane. Schools are often the first place you go to shelter when there's bad weather. So, I mean, you have all sorts of policy implications you deal with on a regular basis, don't well, you, that way? Well, COVID certainly taught us that if we didn't know before. <laughs> <laughs> the health and education connections are, yes, are deep and real. And again, that's where I was so glad to hear you say you're connecting with our fabulous directors of schools because they are, I mean, they are just champions, you know, for their communities. And they, they are, in many cases, the most important person in that community because yeah. of, of the kind of gatekeeping nature of a school. I mean, it is the lifeblood of, of the community. Uh, both in terms of sometimes being the biggest employer and also, like you said, the first place of refuge, you know, in an emergency, not to mention, you know, the academic backbone and the future of our society. So, you know, they're big shoes that these men and women are filling. A huge one of the superintendents said, and I, I just love it. He's, you know, we we're probably the biggest food service operation in our county on a regular basis. And I thought that's true. It, you know, it, you don't often hear it put that way, but to contextualize what's done, I thought, you're feeding 15, 20,000 students every day after school, before school, lunch, moving food. I mean, it's just an incredible operation. Just that part alone. Yep, exactly. I mean, it's, it's remarkable, the responsibilities that they, they have. Now, with, with that, too, do you, obviously you work on um, policy related to food and nutrition and all those things as well, don't you? Yeah, just to give you a sense, I mean, it, it is um, quite a broad sort of policy agenda that comes to the board because you've got, you know, school bus safety standards, you've got new school nutrition standards, you've got, like I mentioned, licensure and preparation standards, who, mm-hmm. who gets to get a license in, in Tennessee and what programs are approved to train those would be educators. Um, we look at curriculum and approved textbooks. We, um, you know, it's just, it runs the gamut. We have charter schools that fall under us. We've got private parochial schools that fall under us at some level. So it, it's, um, one of the things that we try to do for our board is to hone in through our master plan. What are the biggest policy priorities each year? Because it can feel like everything in the kitchen sink um, <laughs> that they're asked to decide on. And so trying to put energy into the policy areas that are likely to have the biggest impact on student achievement yeah. um, is something that we try to do through our master plan and, and kind of anchoring our policies in some of those priorities each year. Makes sense. And then you tie with the funding model to those priorities and then empower the districts to submit the right things so the funding will flow smoothly, I would imagine, too, correct? Yeah, and at, you know, stay tuned. We're in the midst of, as you mentioned, of making a big shift in the way that we fund districts yeah. and schools. And I, I hope, I think, that it's going to yield positive net benefit because it's really based on individual students and their needs, and it's going to be much more specific 
to what does it cost to serve and educate different types of students and making sure that districts and then schools have the resources that they need to do that well. Yeah. And they, the superintendents all talked about, you know, the career and career tech area, that that's been a big push as well, which, you know, in my mind makes complete sense. Cause if anything, the pandemic taught us that we're really interdependent on things that we don't control. How do we bring that back to the table for ourselves so that we empower and we can produce in the United States like we need to? No, exactly. That was another trend that we saw going into COVID and has just kind of been hyper um, uh, focused on coming out because, you know, students, one of the ways to say it is they're impatient. They want to get to work, you know, and whether <laughs> that's, that's a four-year degree or a two-year degree or, you know, some sort of tech certificate, we need to do a better job as an education community of exposing our children to those opportunities, understanding the implications for course selection starting in eighth grade, if not sooner, but certainly in high school, giving them the advising that they need um, along the way so that they can think about the career path that they're on. Because even if you're going to a four-year liberal arts institution, you know, I certainly hope if my children choose that path, they still have a career in mind at the end of it. You know, I mean, it really is about productive work and the changing nature of work. And so trying to anchor a high school experience much more fully in the future of work is something that we're really interested in digging into over the next year and looking at policy grants happening across the state right now with high schools and middle schools, I think will, you know, teach us some important things about what policy needs to look like for high schools and middle schools to best serve students, you know, moving forward in the future. And that gets into exactly what you mentioned, which was the board members connected to their communities to see what the needs are, right? Yeah. We had our last, uh, I have to tell you, this quarterly board meeting at Roan State Community College for that reason, because they have this fabulous middle college uh, model that you oh, know, we'd yes. love to see more in the state where you've got, I mean, one, one of these students that we heard from, he was the youngest doctor in the state of Tennessee at 23 because he was able to front load so many of his you know, college credits as high school student, and then to take advantage of the scholarship opportunities to get through med school and graduate at 23. Um, but, but really more than that, it was showing us how the uh, economy in this part of the state, you know, and it's a rural community was mm-hmm. anchored into the high school experience. So students who wanted to could, and it wasn't required, but if they wanted to, they could do this middle college model and graduate with a high school degree and an associate's degree at the same time yeah. um, because of the way it was developed. So Yeah, there's just innovations like that that are really exciting to see. And we want to make sure our board members are deeply aware of what's possible. You know, and it fulfills a need. Like you mentioned, there's students that will do that. There's students that won't. Um, And that's the thing I hear over and over again from the, like I said, the incredible director of schools and superintendents is they have to look at all those needs. And you do as well from the policy standpoint. And the key is not to cut off opportunities for students. We don't want to trap students into different paths. We want to make sure that there's like multiple on and on ramps and that career in college, it's the same in terms of the preparation because everybody's in, hopefully going to end up in a career. And so it's not different standards. And I think that's, that's a change too. You were asking about changes earlier. I think in yeah. years past, it was like college or career. And now it's, it's now it's college and career. We know all of our students need some sort of post-secondary training. That's another place where the data is very clear. When we look at our P20 system, if you graduate in Tennessee with just a high school diploma, you're making, you know, it changes, but roughly let's say $15,000 a year on average, which is well below the poverty line. So we, we know objectively that students need some post-secondary training. Right. What training they need is going to be their question to answer. And that's where I think the advising and the opportunities earlier to explore different career pathways um, are really important. 
I like that you said P through 20, not K16, P20. Like this is all the way through grad school. And uh, obviously in your role too, you work with universities, correct? Mm -hmm. The community college system, post-grad. I mean, you're really looking at everything that funnels into potential careers. We do. Yep. I sit on the higher ed commission here and their executive director likewise sits on our board and that helps to keep, you know, create some continuity there as well. What, what are you hearing from the higher education system folks? What are they saying these days? You know, as higher education professional, I talk to all my colleagues all the time and we, we know what's happening. And then there's K through 12 and the different, just the different interactions and priorities. Mm-hmm. Well, I think, you know, again, we're all, trying to make sense of, you know, the world post COVID or, you know, as we we come out of COVID and, you know, one of the data points that is um, concerning is like a real drop in the college going rate. Mm -hmm. And that's something that higher ed is talking about. That's a place where we're partnering together to say, okay, how do we make sure that communities have this information about their schools specifically? And what are we doing to try to address that? I mean, some of that you can chalk up to COVID again, people were going, you know, more quickly into work, um, environment as opposed to pursuing post-secondary degrees. But we know, again, that, you know, the reality is those jobs that some students were opting into versus post-secondary training are not going to be sustainable careers. And so how do you re-engage some of those students back into the system to finish or or start a degree in some cases? Um, Yeah, a lot of that. And again, what what role do the community colleges and uh, technical schools play in addition to our four-year institutions? It's true. You're right. The the drop in the amount of students going to um, college has changed. It's significant. It's impacting. I mean, California, it's impacting us here, you know, all over the country. Now, are you finding that the population of students in, say, K through 12 has changed in Tennessee or is it growing that way? Sorry, the population of students? Yeah, the total number of students in, in your system. It's remained about uh, a million statewide in the K-12 system. Yeah, it hasn't changed that much. Because I know everyone talks about going to Tennessee. I'm going to move there, right? I'm going to move to Tennessee. Well, Nashville, that's, I mean, I, I don't know the numbers in Nashville. Just anecdotally, it feels like we have a lot of new neighbors. <laughs> <So> <laughs> I can't speak to Nashville specifically, but as a state, it's, it's remained pretty balanced. Pretty consistent. I mean, population is changing, right? And that does happen. And um uh, you know, you feel it in higher education, you feel it in K through 12 schools are combined. And depending on where you live in Tennessee, it's going to have a very different impact, isn't it? Yes. Yes, that's very true. I know when I was talking to um, Bo Griffin at Millington outside of Memphis, he was talking about the, um, the electric car plants and things that are moving in and those kinds of opportunities to partner with these incredible uh, manufacturing, it was a Ford plant that's coming in there for their electric trucks. He's mm-hmm. talking about what they're doing and how they're engaging and what they're doing community wise. And it's got to be exciting for you to know that that's happening with your board members and they get to share and talk about that. Oh, definitely. That, yeah, that it's called blue oval, but it's a big deal bringing that Ford plant to West Tennessee. And, and just again, the catalyst that that's going to create in our school system to meet the needs of that, you know, big employer and the opportunity that that presents for our state. Uh, it's driving a lot of conversations about just this topic about how, how you make sure that school systems really are linking arms with workforce and business to understand the needs of the future in terms of the economy and the jobs that will be there for these students when they graduate. It's part of that dialogue, right? Board members mm-hmm. have to talk to the business community leaders as well as the educators, correct? That's right. All the time. Now, um, 
I was just thinking of something related to to all that. So on your board, you have a student member, correct? On the board we of do. education. We do. That's, that's a seat that's not currently filled. Sometimes it's hard, like the timing of replacing those student members. But um, yes, we typically have a high school junior or senior who sits on the board as a voting member. That, first of all, that's incredible opportunity for them. And you must have had some fun getting to know them and just oh, seeing sure. it's such I mean, a fresh perspective and so, so valued <laughs> by the rest of the board. Yeah. Yeah. Cause the kids do talk. They know, I mean, oh, they know better than anyone. I mean, as a former <laughs> teacher, I had my own student surveys that I would give and I would always cringe when I would read some of the reviews because they were brutally honest and you know, they knew better than anyone what was going on. You know, sometimes you took it with a grain of salt, but you knew there was some truth in there. <laughs> It's true. They hold up uh, a mirror and you're like, oh, I didn't yeah. really want to see that. Yeah. So yeah, <laughs> even it's though really you a know it's perspective to have on the board. And how does a how does a student get on become chosen? How does that happen for them? Well, it's it's not a perfect process, but directors of, of schools nominate to the governor's office um, a student, usually a rising junior. Um, and then they have kind of their black box of interview and, you know, kind of way of vetting, but yeah, it's basically through, through a nomination process at the district level. Okay. So that, that can be pretty intensive and developmental for those kids. Oh, definitely. I, I would think that most members, student members, it, it would say it was a defining opportunity for them. Sure. So the interaction and the, the insight that it provides um, around, you know, our school systems and our, our state decision-making. I love that that you include that, and obviously the parents and the voters and everybody involved and everything. Um, and I think you know when when you look at you know in California they have like the legislative analyst office, right? And there are programs that are rolled out, and they they talk to people about whether they're working or not. Is that part of your role as well? Yes. Yes. Um, yeah. I mean, we are the oversight and kind of policy making body. So we depend a lot on the department to bring information back to us, but we, you know, convene educators like we did this morning. We had a number of our ed prep representatives talking about licensure and, and prep policy. Um, we do our best to make sure that we're communicating directly with, you know, the folks that are affected by our policies. That's true. I'm with sure a student focus, ultimately, you know, we talk a lot with yeah. educators, yeah. but as we said, the students are really, you know, their, their interests are what drive our board. Of course. Hey, this, these are the people I'm sure you have some lively conversations in those, okay. some of those it's meetings. It's part of what I like about the job, you know, that's the right. variety and the, <laughs> the passion that people bring. Yep. You know, it, it, it's, it's always fun to be able to talk to leaders like yourself in the superintendents. Cause one of the things we try to do at Plexus is, is change the conversation from the standpoint of, being critical to what opportunities exist, right? Because that's that's really like you can see the challenge and not know what to do with it. So, uh, developing policy and and teachers and systems that are you know problem solving oriented versus just problem pointing out oriented. When you look at some of the challenges that the state may be facing over the next few years, or just opportunities for right to change the conversation, what what opportunities are are you guys working on, or are you seeing that's out there? Well, we talked a little bit about already the need to re-examine the models of high school and middle school in light of, you know, changing work, uh, future of work, and also COVID experiences right. that students have experienced. Um, and I think that's a place where I'm really interested to learn over the next, like, 12 to 18 months, especially, because there are a lot of innovative innovation grants that districts are receiving. Part of our role at the 
policymaking shop, you know, state board is to not be a barrier for innovation. And so yes. we want to be at the table in those conversations where um, districts have some extra money to be innovative and to propose models and to understand where policy can be a support and where it might be a barrier so that, again, together we can evolve in a way that's going to best serve our students. I like that. And do you facilitate that dialogue with the other districts too? Sometimes it's us facilitating in this Say, case, hey, you know, the department practices, is going to be the, the ones here. that are disseminating those grants. So that's where, again, it's like yeah, a hand sure. in relationship with them. So we'll be, we'll be certainly part of those conversations over the next 12 to 18 months. Gotcha. I know. I think that's one of those things like, what do you do in policy? You just write policy. It's bigger than that. I'm being funny as I say that, but it's, but it's really, really important because good policy includes good outcomes and, you know, effective ways to lead and empowers, you know, the superintendents and the board members and everybody else to do even more. Yeah. Yeah. When done well, I know. And that's where it's constantly, we're constantly iterating, you know, in the policy world. And so I know you mentioned your connection to higher education and you're on that board, obviously teacher education standards, that kind of discussion of what you need teachers to have, you know, I was looking at the, you know, the plan, um, the master plan that you all have in, you know, having the teachers be ready within a certain amount of time. And those that are on, I don't know, it's probably not an emergency credential, but, you know, building teacher credentials. How does that teacher pipeline look and how's that going with the universities? Well, that was her big topic this morning of conversation, because I feel like this school year more than in years past, I mean, there's always kind of this uh, news headline, like you know, teacher shortage, like we can't yeah. find educators. And that's kind of a perennial news line, but <laughs> this true. year it feels very real. Mm. Um, and we'll see in our data come January, like the vacancy reports that department will generate from districts, how, how, like what the numbers are, but anecdotally, I mean, to a superintendent, that's the first thing that we talk about is, you know, the lack of educators that they can find to fill a lot of positions. And that's exacerbated because of some of the high quality, you know, high dosage tutoring um, that's happening across the state, trying to, you know, accelerate coming out of COVID, making sure that students who are behind grade level are getting access to that um, very intensive tutoring. And that, that requires a licensed educator in most cases to do well. But um, we're just looking at our licensure requirements and trying to see where there's duplication that we can eliminate from the system. And we'll kind of free some people up to get into the classroom more quickly without, you know, reducing our expectations, but just trying to look holistically around licensure and prep to see are there adjustments that we can make um, without, you know, lowering standards, but yes. people are getting into the classroom prepared and as fast as possible. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, thinking about what we do now and it affects the future and keeping that pipeline open based on the policy, both funding and um, connection and, and just really serving the state. You know, it's, there's so many different things I want to talk about, but the time always goes by so quickly. Um, it's already been, I don't know how much time, but it's, it's been a lot of fun talking to you about these things. And is there anything else you want to share about yourself or the, you know, the State Board of Education before we wrap things up? No, it's been a great conversation. I just, you know, kind of ending where we started, I, I just, as frustrating as it can be sometimes to be in the field of education because you never get it as right as you want for every student. <laughs> I continue to be hopeful that it is the thing in society that if we focus on and get right, it just, you know, it sets up everything else for success. Like we, we have to continue to double down and, and think about K-12 education as the pipeline for our future. And, you know, our students are depending on us. 
Absolutely. Well, hey, Sarah, thank you for your time. I really appreciate you joining the conversation. And it's, it's great to hear your perspective and what you're doing in, in public education to make sure our kids and teachers and districts have the best of the best. Well, thank you, David. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for joining the Plexus High School Leadership Podcast Series. If you'd like more information on this podcast or Plexus, please visit us at plexus.com forward slash solutions. Thank you.